God of War is a truly remarkable game. It's a game that set out to do a lot. It set out to reinvent its protagonist. It brings us to a new world entirely with different rules, limitations, and boundaries that constrain its inhabitants in new and foreign ways. It aimed to give players an all-new combat system that gets more and more complicated and engaging the more you play, an upgrade and leveling system directly tied into exploration, something in and of itself a revolution against the previous games. And most significantly, Corey Barlog and his team at Sony Santa Monica set out to deliver a narrative experience akin to that of a Naughty Dog title such as Uncharted and The Last of Us, an endeavor truly ambitious. Now this video is not intended for those who have not yet played the game. Sure, you can watch it even if you haven't, but be warned that I'm going to spoil absolutely everything, and in the narrative section I'm going to spoil the story of The Last of Us as well. The goal of this video is to analyze and critique what does, and most importantly, what doesn't work in God of War. There are videos galore discussing how incredible and amazing this game is, but there are very few, if any, that seek to point out the good and bad, something crucial for honest evaluation. At times it may seem as though I'm just nitpicking, but at the end of the day, this game is fantastic. If you're on the edge and unsure of whether or not you should play this game, just do it, play it. That's my inspiration to you. But with that said, this is not a review, it's not a casual discussion, it's a critique. I'm not going to describe every basic game function because the assumption is that you are already familiar with them. Basic evaluative statements like the game looks great and sound design is well done are not going to be found here. Instead, we're going to break down the game's story in detail all the way down to a discussion on postmodernism in modern storytelling and of course the gameplay and what makes it tick. This is going to be a long video, so feel free to jump around the video using the timestamps in the description below if you want to start watching now and come back later. I also want to quickly say thank you to all of my supporters on Patreon. Without you guys, this video would not be possible and would not have been made, so this one's for you guys. But with all that said, and without further ado, let's get started. God of War is a game that hinges on the development of its characters, primarily Kratos and Atreus. At the start of the game we see a Kratos that is struggling both with the loss of the woman that he loved dearly and with his newfound responsibility to care for his son Atreus. We'll go into more detail in a moment, but fundamentally Kratos clearly has somewhere to go in his character. In previous games in the series, we've gotten backstories, explanations, and exposition, but Kratos was never a character that you truly cared about. Instead, he was simply a vessel of violence that you could project your own stresses onto and live vicariously through him as he ripped off the heads of people that he didn't like, something I'm sure we can all relate to. And so there's a lot that's riding on this arc that Kratos will be going on over the course of this story, and I think that this makes it all the more interesting that Cory Barlog, the game's director, decided to start the game in as solemn a way as possible. You see, the game takes place an indiscriminate amount of time after Kratos' time chilling with the Olympic gods. He's now in a Norse land named Midgard, where he has seemingly been living with his new wife Faye and their son Atreus. What has been going on since Kratos left Greece is unclear, and that is very intentional, but not necessarily important. What is important is that Kratos has started a new life in Midgard, and that life has just come crashing down. 
From the moment you start the game, you see Kratos standing resolute by a marked tree. He's waiting patiently for you to start chopping down that tree so that it can be used as timber for Faye's funeral pyre. After chopping down the tree in typical dramatic Kratos fashion, he ties the log onto a small boat and hops in with Atreus as an awkward exchange ensues. And can I just say, I know this is small and stupid, but Kratos chops down this tree near its base. It falls over and then he picks it up and carries it to the boat, but the top of the tree is also cut and trimmed so that it fits in the stream with you. My question is, was the top of the tree already missing? Did he already trim that part before cutting it down? It seems small and stupid, and it is, but it really bugs me. I don't know. If, if you have an explanation or if it's something little that I'm missing, let me know in the comments. But anyway, you sail along the stream, you take the log to the pyre, and Kratos starts chopping it as Atreus runs inside to light candles and say some prayers over the body of his freshly departed mother. Kratos comes in, takes the body to the pyre, they watch it burn together. Atreus then burns his hand while trying to grab a knife out of a fireball, a precursor to his lack of self-restraint and impulse control issues that will come up repeatedly throughout the story. And then Kratos decides that they are going to go and hunt a deer as part of a test to see if Atreus is ready to, as we'll learn later, join him as they travel to the highest peak in all of the realms to spread Fae's ashes. Now all of this is great and is certainly an interesting setup for the journey to come, but it is vastly different from what we've seen in previous God of War titles. In earlier games, such as God of War 2, we start with a massive set piece and usually a boss battle to introduce us to the controls in a simple and dramatic way. It works well because it frames what the game will be all about. When you sit down to play a God of War game, you can expect these massive boss battles with tons of action and gore and a production budget that would make James Cameron uncomfortable. And this has been true of practically every game in the series to this point, but with this game we get a very different introduction. It's quiet, it's solemn, it's discreet, it's everything that God of War isn't. When I first went through this opening section, I felt as though I was playing a Naughty Dog game. The narrative was taking its time to set itself up and was in no rush to get to the action. This was both surprising and expected. Watching all of the coverage leading up to the game's release, it was pretty clear what Sony Santa Monica wanted to do this time around, but it wasn't clear to what degree they were going to be successful. But they weren't kidding. God of War is a game wholly unlike all of its siblings in the franchise, for better or worse. This change of focus, needless to say, has led to many comparisons to The Last of Us and also Uncharted, and I have to say that these comparisons are fair. So fair, I would say, that I will be making multiple throughout this video. Now, comparisons across games are usually pretty useless, but if done properly, they can frame what does and doesn't work well for each respective piece. Now, Cory Barlog has stated many times that God of War took inspiration from The Last of Us, and this can immediately be seen in the dialogue and story structure. We have two people, both of which have been forced together and through forces entirely beyond their control are forced to endeavor on a grand adventure together while learning to love, trust, and care for each other. And if this sounds familiar, it's because it is. It's effectively the same exact story as The Last of Us, but I wouldn't immediately cast it aside as a carbon copy. Now, of course, there are those who would and have disregarded this game's story as a postmodernist reinterpretation of a classic, that classic being The Last of Us, but there's more to it than that. I've read countless refutations and scathing critiques of games, plays, movies, and even songs that argue that because a piece of art was not wholly original to those designing it, it holds no artistic merit, and this, I believe, 
is a foolish conclusion. Now here we're going to briefly go on a tangent into postmodernist storytelling because I think it actually is very important in the modern art scene and also in recent video game storytelling techniques. Neil Druckmann and Corey Barlog both employ postmodernist storytelling techniques in their games narratives. And so if we can understand a bit more of postmodernism, perhaps we can get a better grasp on what makes these games work and what the future holds for them. And so let's delve a little bit into what a postmodernist story looks like and why it can be so polarizing. Now, the core contention at the heart of this discussion is whether or not there's anything truly original left to be discovered and employed within the narrative pieces that we all enjoy. Looking at Shakespeare, for instance, we can see that quite obviously there have been countless productions of a show such as Hamlet throughout the last 400 or so years. As a result of this, many different things have been tried and a plethora of different performances have been given. The reason this becomes an issue is because an actor and director's job is to provide a compelling portrayal of a particular character and to tell a particular story in a creative, insightful, intriguing, and original way. This is widely accepted to be a major issue facing artists in the modern art scene. However, the solution is what is heavily disagreed upon. Postmodernists argue that a coagulation of many different arts styles and previous performances can still create an original piece, albeit a mosaic of many past ones. However, the artistic purists will argue that the postmodern approach is defeatist. Instead of looking for truly original ways to perform a particular play or piece, they are simply giving up and looking to the work that previous performers have done instead of trying to create something of their own. Now, both sides have something to their arguments, and as is most often the case in artful endeavors, the answer lies somewhere in the middle. It is perfectly reasonable to take influence and inspiration from many different artists or even art forms to influence your particular art. However, at its core, it still must be the artist in question creating the artwork and not someone else that they are channeling. Beyond opening the artistic process to the coagulation of multiple artistic pieces to create one large collage of alleged originality, postmodernism attempts to deconstruct what are commonly accepted as truths to challenge a perceived reality. In my research for this video, I came across a passage from the Art and Popular Culture Encyclopedia that describes this quite eloquently in the following passage. Quote, Most postmodern productions are centered around highlighting the fallibility of the truth which are held as definite. More precisely, grand narratives are deconstructed in order for the audience to reach their own individual understanding. Essentially, this process of deconstruction raises questions rather than attempting to supply answers. For instance, Sam Shepard in his Pulitzer Prize winning play, Buried Child, deconstructs the idea of the American dream and leaves the audience with their own interpretation of what the American dream's uh, fallibility and future future holds. Now this may seem minor, but it can be seen in many of the most successful modern plays of the last century. Whether we're looking at Death of a Salesman, A Bright New Boise, or even A Dollhouse, the author never expressly communicates what their intent is behind writing the piece. Instead, it's left up to the audience member to interpret the story as they will. And no doubt, we've seen this technique employed in gaming as well. This is certainly a positive trait of postmodernism, but one might ask whether or not this deconstruction can be employed without compromising the integrity of the rest of the artistic process. Now, naturally, it's difficult to discuss the artistic process broadly because it is different for every single artist. However, there are a few integral pieces that make up the artistic process that are true for anyone. 
In theater, for instance, especially modern theater, it is becoming increasingly common for playwrights to be accused of plagiarism or simply a lack of originality due to some inevitable similarities between their works and the works of those who came before. Now, the reality is that this is a mathematical inevitability, that most plays, songs, performance pieces, and even gaming narratives will bear some resemblance to a previously performed piece in the same category or genre. The degree of similarity is what's important. Playwright Ellen McLaughlin's play Iphigenia and the Other Daughters is a simplified retelling of the story of Electra by Sophocles. McLaughlin wrote the story intent on copying the plot points that Sophocles initially laid out thousands of years ago. However, she tried to hit a modern audience more pointedly by altering the language, the staging, and even the casting. She set out to deliver a postmodern experience wherein she deconstructed the original piece and rebuilt it from her perspective, and in this she delivered. While the story itself was not original, her perspective on the story was, and some welcomed this rewritten version of Sophocles' classic as brilliant, brave, and groundbreaking, while others saw it as a, quote, heavy-handed, vicarious script comprised of thinly-veiled provocative dialogue, end quote. Another example would be Marina Carr, who is an Irish playwright who has been criticized in the past for a lack of originality stemming from her postmodernist tendency to rework ancient Greek tragedies and older European works into modern settings that are easier for today's audiences to digest. Naturally, she has long thought about what it means to be original, whether or not it's possible and whether or not it's even important. And she says in an interview with The Independent, quote, only a 19-year-old would talk about originality. A big thing for writers is escaping influence. It's impossible, and I'm convinced at this stage that anyone who says they have is lying. Now, while her cavalier attitude is a bit shocking at first, she is trying to make a larger point. The job of the author is to tell stories and make them digestible for the audience of their time and local communities. If that means that an ancient Greek fable is reworked into modern language, so be it. And here we come to the inherent issue with postmodernism. It is an artistic movement that asks artists to remove all barriers, all preconceived notions of what that piece of art should be, and all restraint. And it replaces these things with shallow, flimsy, uninspired shells of what was there before. It is a remarkably modern idea that any sort of constraint or frame imposed upon an artistic medium would be inherently bad. The fact that Shakespeare's plays were written in iambic pentameter does not mean that his plays are weaker than postmodernist plays that are written in intentionally vague and confusing ways. If anything, that rigid frame he built his plays and dialogue around forced them to be of a higher quality than they would have otherwise been. And when poets craft a story in meter, they are, technically speaking, constrained. However, it is not a weakness of their craft, but rather a strength of it. Tying this back to God of War and The Last of Us, gaming narratives are inherently constrained. You are limited to telling stories only during particular moments or sequences or by trying to sprinkle it into the gameplay loop. Now we've seen some games that try to break down these barriers completely and just focus on their stories while shedding the constraints that would normally limit them. An example would be something like What Remains of Edith Finch or Firewatch, games that are often called walking simulators because they shed the limitations of what is usually expected of a video game, i.e. 
gameplay, and they replace it with narrative effectuality. Now, this is not an inherently bad thing, but just like shedding the bounds of meter within poetry, it is not for everyone and can often lead to some pretty crappy artwork from those who rest on postmodernism as a crutch for artistic laziness. God of War and The Last of Us, on the other hand, balance this quite well. They only attempt to tell stories when it's appropriate, and they back off when the gameplay needs to take center stage. Going back to the issue of originality, however, it is clear that there is a lot of similarity between God of War and Naughty Dog's surprise classic, and fundamentally they try to achieve the same character arcs. And so, let's compare the two and see how they do. Now I know that this comparison will upset some, but I think it's a fair comparison considering that the two games' directors have said that they are fans of each other's work and take inspiration from each other. The two stories they're telling are remarkably similar, and of course God of War is aspiring to do what The Last of Us very publicly achieved, a dark, gritty, grounded story told through the medium that is video games. The Last of Us is the epitome, and so comparing the two, at least to me, seems a solid way of determining how effective Sony was in their attempt to create a compelling narrative. Now I'll start out by saying plainly that I believe that The Last of Us is more effective in its emotionality and narrative in general than God of War, and I believe that this is for a few reasons. First, Naughty Dog was dealing with two characters who are sympathetic from the outset. Joel lost his daughter, and Ellie has lost the only person she could relate to and cared about, albeit we only see this in the DLC. Secondly, Ellie is a young girl, and whether you like it or not, it's just easier to relate to and care about Ellie when compared to Atreus. This is partly because from the outset of The Last of Us, we see a world that is very grounded, at least in the words of Neil Druckmann. Every action has a consequence, and every character is subject to them. In God of War, we are in a world that is certainly more realistic in terms of the rules of pain and death, at least than Olympus seemed to be, but it's still a land of mystery and magic and is governed by rules that are beyond the players and even the characters within the game's understanding. As a result, the stakes are inherently lower. At any point in The Last of Us, any of the characters could be severely injured or even killed, and it would make sense. There's even moments in the game where all of that happens, and Joel is left bleeding out in a garage, leaving the player to wonder if their journey is about to come to a premature end. This narrative tactic was masterfully employed in The Last of Us, and so it's no surprise that Sony Santa Monica wanted to try to do the same thing, and they did. About halfway through the game, Atreus becomes ill, and after you bring him to Freya, she tells you that the only way to save him is to go to Helheim and retrieve the heart of the Gatekeeper. It's at this point that Kratos leaves Atreus behind, just like Ellie had to leave Joel behind to retrieve medicine, and he leaves to retrieve the Blades of Chaos and enter the Realm of the Damned. Now in The Last of Us, this worked very well, and the player felt significantly less safe without Joel present. Ellie was left, for the majority of the sequence, with only a small pocket knife, whereas Joel was previously carrying around a flamethrower, shotgun, pistol, bow and arrow, and even grenades made out of nails. There's a sense of helplessness that instills the player with urgency, because if you don't hurry and find the medicine, Joel will die and leave you all alone with no means of defending yourself. And so narratively, it's very potent. However, in God of War's version, you're still Kratos, and you even gain a new, far more powerful weapon to employ. 
Now, don't get me wrong, I got just as excited as everybody else when he opened the floorboard that he had previously told Atreus never to open and pulled out the blades we thought were lost to history, but it was done at the cost of what could have been the story's pivotal moment. This is the only real time that Atreus and Kratos, the father and son duo, are separated in the entire game, and it could have been used to show him how Atreus was his only link to humanity and how without him he would be right back where he was when Athena had severed all of his ties to mankind previously. But it doesn't achieve that at all. In fact, I didn't find myself missing Atreus's help at all, but rather found myself reveling in my new toys and all of the fun I was having without him. If they wanted this moment, what I would argue was the most important sequence in the game, to work, they needed to severely limit Kratos' abilities and instill a sense of urgency. They needed to make the player feel the same way Kratos was feeling. Maybe they could have taken away his axe or some of his health or something so that the player would feel more vulnerable, and then made it very clear that Atreus was going to die if you weren't successful. And then, lastly, but perhaps most importantly, they needed to give us a moment after Kratos saved Atreus where the two could come to realize how important they were to each other. Once again, this is a moment done expertly in The Last of Us, but completely missed in God of War. In Naughty Dog's version, we see Ellie finally taking control and beating her assailant's head in with a machete as Joel grabs her and calls her baby girl for the first time, the same name we see him call his daughter in the prologue, as they hold each other and the scene cuts to black. In Sony Santa Monica's version, Atreus gets up, Kratos exhales with relief, you talk with Freya for a minute, and then you leave. There's no big moment where you can see that these two characters are fundamentally different, it's just assumed that the transformation has taken place and the scene ends. It's a travesty that this opportunity was missed, because if it had been done properly, the characters' story arcs would have been clearly defined, but it wasn't, and instead the writers did the bare minimum. Just imagine how much more sympathy you would have had had they given you control of Atreus while Kratos was catatonic or overtaken with dark magic, for instance. You would have felt helpless and in need of your father's strength and skill, and you would be willing to do anything to save him. Now granted, this is the exact same technique used in The Last of Us, but that's just the point. This was done because it works. Leaving the player with Kratos is not effectual, it doesn't work. But once again, the question of originality comes into play. Should Sony Santa Monica have just rolled over and employed the tactic I just described because it works, or should they have tried to come up with their own tactic as they did, even if it didn't serve the story as well? We aren't talking about a carbon copy of Neil's script but rather the same gameplay tactic being employed to evoke emotion. Would that have been copying or simply taking inspiration from another studio? Personally, I'm inclined to lean to the latter because the story would have been greatly improved had they done this. Sure, it's been done before, but if the goal of the game is to tell a compelling story, why should a concern of full originality hinder it? This is something that is highly contested and will no doubt cause a lively discussion in the comments uh, to ensue, and so I welcome you to leave your thoughts below as I'm very interested to hear what you all have to say on the matter. Another reason that The Last of Us is more narratively successful is because the game is just shorter. 
Now, I'm not complaining that I got 36 hours out of God of War, but rather I'm saying that it is, as you would expect, much harder to provide a high quality, highly guided story experience when you're trying to spread it over two and a half times that length. Sony can't be faulted for this, but it certainly is a factor that plays into the narrative's potency. I can remember every step of my journey with Joel and Ellie, not so much with Kratos and Atreus. Now, these comparisons are strictly narrative with some gameplay implications, but clearly these two games were trying to do two very different things. If anything, God of War's task was much more difficult because it required making someone who is inherently unsympathetic just that. They also were working with established characters and lore, whereas Neil Druckmann was able to craft the story precisely because he was starting from scratch and could do and create the world that he saw fit to tell the story. So, they aren't perfect analogs for each other, but they are excellent examples of narratives within games. God of War's narrative relied more on established tropes and expected plot developments than surprising or innovative moments. But moving on to something a bit broader, let's talk about the story's goal and efficacy. The story is simple. Father and son need to get on top of a mountain to spread some ashes, and once this is complete, so will be their journey and in turn the story. That's the macro. But on the micro, we have Kratos and Atreus learning to trust and care for each other without Faye as the connecting tissue between them. This is the real story. Now I will be honest, when I began playing God of War, I expected them to rely on huge moments and set pieces to ooh and ah the player into a state of amazement, just as the previous games did. However, the game I got was far from this perceived version. Rather than focus on Thor and Odin, even though they're discussed at length, the game focuses on smaller antagonists who serve as speed bumps for Kratos and Atreus. They don't offer any significant threat to the duo, but rather are brief inconveniences to them, and this is both a strength of the game and also a weakness. The strength lies in the fact that Corey Barlog understood what this game's task was, and it was to focus on Kratos and Atreus's bond. After this is established, the developers can move on and stack the newly formed team against any number of demigods, giants, and full-blooded gods. But the latter journey is not the journey these two are on in this story. Corey even spoke about this in the following interview with GameSpot, which I'll play a clip from now. Um, it's the instinct in the beginning that you just want to overload everything. You just want to put everything in. And interestingly, the first script we drafted uh, I had to pretty much pull the plug on. Uh, it was one of the writers that we had working for, Shane Lee's gang, put a lot of heart and soul into that one. And I realized when we were at like a really crude rough draft form that we were writing the second game. That we were suddenly so deep into the mythology that it was taking center stage and the father-son story was actually getting pushed aside a little bit. There was a lot of amazing ideas in there, ideas I hope to use in the future, but uh, that one really kind of centered me and realized, okay, got to step back, got to start over, got to focus it in on, I think, the things that are not the, the sort of main pop culture understandings, right? So yeah. Marvel brings us the understanding of, of Loki and Thor and Anthony Hopkins. And I realized, like, look, people know that, but that's not what's going to get them into our world. What's going to get them into our world is really centering around Kratos and radiating out with stories that feel like you connect with these people that it feels like you're hearing somebody recount a story from the bar the other day yeah. but it really actually is a piece of mythology it feels less than like a lecture like a like a bit of an education more like oh that's crazy i wonder if i'm going to run into that person yeah. that was the connection we really wanted people to have so it never felt like you were overwhelmed or you hadn't studied the night before 
The other side of this determination is in that this game is not necessarily meant to be considered as an independent piece. Corey has also spoken at length about the interconnectivity of the first three titles and how the goal was always to pick up right where the previous game left off. For example, look at this interview Corey did with Game Informer while playing the last God of War game he directed, God of War 2. So I remember thinking that this intro was such a like badass payoff to the end of the first game. Yeah, connecting all the way. You sat down in the, the throne and picked up right there. I was really, I'm really big on like trying to connect things so that it feels like when you end uh, one thing, you're picking up almost right where you left off. That's why the end of this game, spoilers for anyone, uh, riding the back of Gaia, <laughs> you know, going up to take on Zeus, is was always meant to be the very beginning of three. I just love that feeling of... Uh, if you wanted to, you could play all three back to back and feel like it's a continuous adventure. God of War 2 starts right where God of War ended, with Kratos on the throne as the new God of War. And God of War 3 starts right where God of War 2 ended, with Kratos on the back of Gaia climbing up Mount Olympus to take on Zeus. I can't help but suspect that this new God of War, seemingly being set up for a new trilogy, will follow the same pattern. It may be frustrating that the game cuts the story off where it does, but in the long term it will work in the fans' favor. Now with that in mind, you can see how this was a willing sacrifice for the sake of the story, but the weakness that it brings is in the form of disappointment. I can't help but feel a bit disappointed with how anticlimactic the end of the game is. Throughout the whole journey, there's this feeling of impending conflict and chaos, but the final battle with Baldur is more akin to a mid-game boss fight from previous titles. We fight him, Kratos chooses to release him while quoting Zeus from earlier in the series, and then he f is forced to kill him after he turns on Freya. And so, with Baldur dead, Freya threatens Kratos and Atreus, which got me excited, because I was thinking, ooh, I'm gonna get to fight her now, and I'll, it'll be the real climax of the game. But no, she leaves, and you're standing there wondering, what's next? And this is the issue with expectation in a game like this. This game was always going to serve as a setup for whatever games come next in the franchise. It was never going to be like God of War 3, where time and time again you're asking yourself, how are they going to top this? As we just heard Corey explain, that's for the second game. This game, if it was going to be successful in its endeavor, had to shed that. However, it still led to confusion and false hope because the game does a terrible job of setting expectations effectively. The entire game, you're hearing about Thor and Odin and these great battles that are destined to take place. And the whole time you're thinking to yourself, that's awesome, I know I'm gonna get to participate, otherwise they wouldn't have told me that. But the game never goes there. It just gets you excited at the idea of taking down Odin and ushering in Ragnarok, something that the series is very clearly headed towards after the final scene reveal that Atreus is actually Loki, the one that jumpstarts Ragnarok. All in all, the game's story is, for the most part, well done, but it fails to provide punctual moments when they're needed and also falls short of the expectations that it lays for itself. Perhaps I was overly hyped about killing Norse gods, but when you're playing a game that centers on a character known for killing gods, I feel it's a fair expectation to have. At its core, God of War is nothing but an appetizer for what's to come, and so it may fall short in the short term, it's going to serve the next game very, very well, because it will have laid the proper foundation for an epic story to be told. It's a good problem to have, restraint. It's frustrating in the short term, but will do the franchise a great service in the long term. And at the end of the day, I just want more. I want more big battles, more character development, more plot twists, 
more of everything. Now there are three main parts to God of War's gameplay loop. One, combat, two, exploration, and three, progression. The first two feed into the third, and as a result, they must be very well balanced or else the whole thing comes crumbling down. So we're going to go through each of these, break them down, and discuss what does and doesn't work. Firstly, combat. As one would expect, combat is critical in any entry of God of War as a franchise. This time around the block, however, was destined to be far more interesting than ever before. This because Sony Santa Monica elected to completely rebuild and restructure the combat system around an axe. This was apparently born out of the game's director being unable to imagine a Norse God of War game without an axe, and so they began designing the system around it. Initially, the game did not even have a recall feature, a system that allows you to summon the axe back to you after throwing it. However, after several tests in the new system, they found that it only seemed natural that Kratos would, at some point, throw the axe, and without an incredibly complicated combo system with thousands of animation anchor points, it was clear that they had to design a new system to accommodate this element. And so, one of the gameplay designers asked why they couldn't just have Kratos recall the axe like Thor does in those Marvel movies. And so they tried it, and quite obviously, it worked. This simple mechanic does wonders for the combat system. When you throw the axe, it freezes the enemy if it is of a particular stature, and this can be invaluable when you're getting swarmed by enemies. When you choose to recall the axe, it can swing through an enemy's legs, and if timed correctly, you can trip them. You can also upgrade your armor and gear as you move through the game and explore to gain new abilities, moves, and strength. By the end of the game, you'll have more combos and abilities than you will know what to do with, but you will still have a way to go before maxing out. Based on my research, most people seem to finish the game around level 6 or 7. However, after this, you can continue exploring and adding abilities until you're level 9, a process which takes a lot of effort. As I played through the game, I was actually surprised how much deeper the combat ended up being to what I thought it was at the outset. Part of this is tied to the fact that halfway through the game, you get access to the Blades of Chaos, and they are very specialized weapons themselves. They have all their own moves, animations, combos, and even upgrade trees. Depending on who I was fighting, be it a Valkyrie or a mob of low-level wolvers, I found myself swapping between weapons during the course of battle in a surprisingly fluid flurry of mayhem. Now this isn't to say that the combat system is without its flaws. It does have some shortcomings, but most indirectly. What I mean is that the enemies are surprisingly one-dimensional. Early on, you travel to Alfheim and fight Dark Elves. These creatures fly and hurl projectiles at you, forcing Kratos to utilize Atreus much more than before, considering that he has ranged abilities. When the shakeup came, I was very glad, because after even a few hours, I'd begun to feel as though the combat was repetitive and was not going to have anything new to throw at me. The issue is that this is only one of three main types of enemies that require you to fundamentally change the way you approach fighting them. 
The others are what I would call the Frozen, more specifically, the enemies that are comprised of ice and are immune to your axe attacks. There's also the Revenant, who require Atreus to stun them before they can be hurt. And of course, there's the vertical enemies that fly and require another dimension of consideration from the player, creatures like Nightmares, Dark Elves, and the like. There are also creatures who exaggerate each of these tendencies. Ogres are just powerful versions of the creatures you're used to fighting after five hours in the game. Same with trolls, reavers, wolves, wolvers, hellwalkers, and high-level draugers. Most Valkyrie are comprised of combat characteristics similar to that of other enemies, albeit with greatly increased strength. Even the boss battles with the likes of Baldur, Magni, and Modi all follow this pattern. They're more of the same, requiring the same approach in combat, same combos and techniques, just in varying degrees of potency. Where the game does succeed in giving the player some variety is in the moments when it throws a large number of enemies at you, all of varying types. When you're fighting 10 Draugrs, you can keep your mind fairly one-dimensional, simply circling and picking them off one by one. But when the game throws a troll in with them that also has projectile abilities with draining damage, it forces you to think outside of the box to deal with the issue. However, as you progress in the game and gain new combos and the Blades of Chaos, both of which help you control large groups of enemies all at the same time, these sequences lose their efficacy and just turn into grind fests where you're just chipping away at the mob as they come for you. The upgrades you can obtain are well designed, but once you have most of them, which you will as you approach the end of the game, there are very few situations where you're forced to think and fight in new ways. The only times you are is when you go up against a super enemy like that of the senior Valkyrie. I've noticed this issue in many games that don't have a great degree of variety within their enemy types. They tend to just throw more of them at you and hope that the chaos that ensues is an adequate substitute for variety. And it can be for a while, but when the game stretches on for a good 35-40 hours, it's understandable that things might become repetitious. Now understand that I'm not bashing the game's combat across the board, but rather pointing out that the longer something is exposed and strenuously tested as a combat system is when the game goes on for tens of hours, you can expect its weakness to shine through and become exposed. It's nothing that would be unexpected, certainly because some of the best games ever made, such as The Witcher 3, The Last of Us, and of course Mass Effect and Andromeda all had their shortcomings. Beyond combat, we have exploration, which is surprisingly important in God of War. While the story is linear and follows a set path, it does allow and even encourage the player to leave the beaten path and explore the world in different realms to gather resources and items to upgrade Kratos and Atreus' armor, weaponry, and abilities. Luckily, the story doesn't inherently have an immense sense of urgency that precludes this exploration, an issue that Fallout 4, for instance, had where it pushed the player to find their missing son at the cost of exploration, the one thing that the game did very well. Because we're just spreading the ashes of a lady who's already dead, we can take our time reaching the mountaintop, and at times, it is even preferable due to the game's steady pace. There weren't many times when I felt as though the game was doing a DPS check or had put up a level barrier, save for a few moments when I stumbled upon a Valkyrie and thought it was part of the main quest, and when I reached a side quest that was very clearly intended for level 8 and up characters. This is pretty remarkable when you consider that at almost any point in the story you can break away and go searching for gear that will make the following fights and main story sequences much easier. 
Now I went through the game as naturally as I could, only breaking away to explore when I felt like it and when it made sense for Kratos and Atreus to do so, and as a result I had a very balanced experience, an experience that I can only imagine is the same as the one intended by Sony Santa Monica. However, I have spoken to several people who broke away and explored for extended periods of time early on, and as a result of their proactivity, they breezed through the next few hours of the game. Now, as far as I can tell, there isn't any active or dynamic enemy level scaling or DPS adjustments that would balance the experience to the difficulty level selected, regardless of previous action or inaction. And so I suppose this is just a cost of the game's design. Insignificant for most, but a mild nuisance for those who encounter it. Hardly game-breaking. And of course, both of these two systems tie together. You explore to find enemies you fight so that you can collect stuff to use to upgrade the stuff you already have. And then you go back out and continue looking for dudes to fight so that you can take their stuff and then use that stuff to upgrade the stuff that you just upgraded. It's very simple, but its beauty is in its simplicity. It's a loop that's simple to understand, but difficult to master. And that's exactly the case here. There's not a lot more to say beyond this. The loop is effective in grabbing players and maintaining their interest throughout the entirety of the game. My only major gripe is with Niflheim. This is one of the nine realms that can only be reached after finding the four corresponding ciphers in Midgard and is known as the Realm of Fog. This place is home to one of the nine Valkyrie and three favors, meaning that you can't dodge it even if you wanted to and still complete the major favors. The issue with this place is that it pairs the combat system with a timer. The idea basically being that the fog is slowly poisoning Kratos and once the timer runs out, he'll die. And so you run in, fight some randomly generated enemies, grab some stuff, leave so that the timer resets and you save the items you collected, and then you re-enter to repeat the whole process. This initially seems interesting, but then Sindri explains that as you explore the realm, you'll find mist echoes, which can be used to craft different pieces of equipment that can increase your tolerance for the fog and in turn allow you to venture deeper into the realm because the timer will last longer. Sound grindy? It is. This was the one moment in the game where I felt like Sony Santa Monica was really trying to lengthen the game time, especially because most of the higher leveled armor can only be obtained by going through this process. And so if you want to be able to defeat all nine Valkyrie, you have to go through this process because otherwise you won't be able to get armor to level your character up past the level eight. In all reality, I don't think it's even possible to get to level 7 without at least doing some grinding in this realm. This really felt like a cool idea gone awry, because if it had been implemented correctly, it could have led to a dynamic, maybe even fully algorithmically generated labyrinth that would never end. Here you could encounter ghostly versions of mini-bosses you fought during the main quest, even though there's very few, and maybe even some enemies specific to this realm. It could have been really cool, but it resulted in a grind fest that feels as though it belongs in an EA game rather than a narrative combat RPG. Other than that, the game is dripping with content, lore, and cool places to explore. That rhymed. I didn't realize it when I wrote it, but now I realize and I, I can't unnotice it. I should probably cut it out of this video, but... No, you know what? No, screw it. I'm keeping it in. God of War's gameplay is stellar, and the fact that it can keep it fresh for 40 hours is truly impressive given the scope of the game. As with most of my criticisms of it, the game just leaves me wanting more. A very good problem to have. And this all brings us to the conclusion. This game is 
amazing. I didn't stress it in this video, but leading up to release, I felt truly burnt out. I was sick of crappy, shallow game after crappy, shallow game that seemed to release at a frustratingly steady pace. I needed something to remind me of why I loved gaming, and God of War did just that. It saved me from the cycle of mediocrity that has been plaguing this industry for years, and I am so glad to be back and reignited with a flame under me to keep me going. I love video games and I love gaming. God of War reminded me of that. And so naturally I'm a bit biased in evaluating the net worth of this game, but at the very least I can say this game did something incredible. And even though we all expected a lot from Corey and his team over at Sony Santa Monica, I don't think anyone expected what we received, a masterpiece.